Well, you don't come all the way to Las Vegas and stop and not stop by. Well, fuck one more time. <laughs> Jesus. Leave that in. Fuck you. You don't come all the way to Las Vegas and then just skip Extreme Couture. You got to come by and see what's going on. So here we are, but we're not just here for the gym. We're here for the man that makes the gym kind of really what it is, among many other people as well. It's one of the best trainers and coaches in the entire sport. It's Eric Nixick. Hi, yeah. Eric. How are you? What's up, guys? Thanks for stopping by. To be fair, here. Eric, we've wanted to do this for a long time. It just so happens that you keep raising champions in the meantime, <laughs> so the timing feels even better. Fresh off of old Deshaun Strickland over there, but uh, great to finally get to do yeah. this with the RSD. Good style. to have you guys in. I think BC was in last year. You, well, both of you guys were in last year, right? No, he got real mad at me because I came without him. That's right. We had That's plans to, to appear here. Yeah. Although together, he had yeah. told me, you can leave without me, and then later... <laughs> it's not what happened. And then not later was kind of a shithead about it. But here we are. We're all together one big happy family I have to say how have things been you had the the big high of the Sean Strickland fight yeah. we talked after that not a tremendous low with Danny Gay but certainly not the same level of um uh, you know, accomplishment. I mean, yeah. How are things? It's been good. You know, we got home right away, and then it was back to the lab with uh, Daniel Zellhuber. We had right. the we had the card at uh, T-Mobile, and it was it was a great fight for him. We needed that type of little bit of adversity in round one. A good grizzled vet, um, make some adjustments going in round two, and, and he did a great job. He's the kid's got talent just oozing out of him. So it's always great to go get in there and go get a win with with Daniel Zellhuber. Um, and then, you know, Ige, man, he's, he's my pride and joy. He's a guy that I just been, this is my 18th pro fight with him. Wow. Uh, we've been together for a long time. And the fights where you just feel like we, we could have done a little bit more in certain positions and things like that, we would have came away with the victory. Those ones are always going to bother you a little bit more. And, you know, it was actually, I think, my first, my first loss since April. So you know, we were on a roll, man. We're doing some good things. And, and when, it, when, it, when it's Dan, it hurts a little bit extra. How, how much are you in contact with Francis these days? Uh, we talk a lot. I was actually, you know, so I, I try to make all the sparring sessions um, and pending on where I'm at with travel. So uh, I'm, I'm trying to get there every night if I can. So they usually practice about six o'clock at night, uh, usually ramp up around seven, seven thirty. bring my son by. We hang out. Uh, it's good. It's good to get in there and, and just kind of get the team back together in that team atmosphere, the team vibe. And then the last couple of weeks has just been really all him traveling and myself traveling. So it was good to get in there yesterday, had some good rounds with the boys. And then uh, those guys are packing and leaving on Sunday, going to Saudi. Saudi, bring it on at Tyson Fury in this big fight. To stay on that for a second, he picked, Francis picked Mike Tyson. And I was wanting, wanting to see what this would look like. And we get a little view with some of the yeah. training videos. What has been the dynamic like between them? Because obviously for Francis, that's his hero. That's, that's my hero. It's everyone's hero. Yeah, you know? no, I think it's a very cool dynamic. And it's, you know, Francis will listen to you. And, but he has a different type of respect when it comes from Mike Tyson. You can feel that with him. You know, me coaching Francis for the last five years, for me, I always had to approach things different with Francis in a way where you had to explain things to him so he understood the reasons why. If Mike tells you to do this, you just do it, right? Me, I'm like, hey man, you, you wanna throw a jab to the chest and the gate level change, or you wanna do this to set this up, or do this. And once he understands the reasons, then he would go, go about and do it but with Mike. No problem, man. I'm on it. I'll do that right away. And so that's, it's been a lot of fun for all of us because, you know, you sit back and, and you put your learning hat on and you're able to learn from one of the greats. Absolutely. It, can we talk about how much of an uphill climb it is? Right? I mean, you know, like you don't get to be one of the best coaches and then also not recognize how hard of a task that is for Francis. Like, what is the argument for Francis? I mean, from your vantage point, like what is... What, what, do, what would you say to people who are like, this is a giant waste of time? Yeah, I mean, and I completely understand that, especially people from the boxing realm, right? The, the purists of the sport. 
Um, I think for me, it's just that, that nostalgia of the one-punch knockout power, the, the ominous figure that when you see Francis Ngannou walk into a cage, what he's capable of doing when he does connect and when he does land. Now, how do we get there, right? What are, what are the methods that we can go and land that big punch? And that's where I think a lot of the X's and O's need to come in. And, you know, how do you cut the, it's not an octagon anymore, it's a boxing ring. How do you cut it off? You know, how do you set up traps? You know, a lot of things that we've been talking about with him is, is to try to implement some of our, our theories within MMA with the switch stances and, and coming in from different angles that most, not saying not all boxers, but some boxers might not be accustomed to in some of the things in their preparations, right? So it's been, it's been very different. It's been very meticulous. For me, it's been one of those situations where it's like, you try to bring up some different theories and thoughts and ideas and see if he can execute them in, in the rounds. As, like yesterday, he, he was doing really, really well. It's like, hey man, let's change our look. Let's go over to Southpaw. And he's got an, even a better like Southpaw cross than he does with the right cross, you know? And some of the things that he does off of that, he can build into you know, moving guys over to his power hand side, which is now his lead hand side. So having a lot of fun with it. Um, and for us, I think it's just a matter of, you know, the purists aren't gonna love it. I get that, I understand that. And, but we have the opportunity to go out there and make the most of it, um, grab the bag and do everything Yeah, he didn't can. fumble the bag. You did not fumble the bag review. on that. Yeah, yeah. Go out there and make your money and, and let's go out there and, and, and have some fun and, you know, damn, do our best. Who, what's the, what number is higher, the number of Francis's knockouts or the number of gummies in your belly right now? I, I don't think that's an accurate <laughs> statement or a professional move from a broadcaster, although I'll throw you under the bus in a heartbeat if I had that chance. Speaking of throwing people under the bus, I'm not sure you're passing a USADA test right now, just to be fair. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I might, I might be able to pass a USADA test. Okay, yeah, really? Right. Yeah, score one for lots of, uh, lots of clomiphene in the blood it's, system. It's right? just a little, one cc of TRT, and that's yeah, it for me. A, so keep me you above know, my levels there. One picogram. Yeah. Could Hurt anybody. Uh, uh, no, I wanted to start at the beginning though and say obviously you've you've got an athletic background yes. although to come to this point of elite MMA coach you didn't take the I guess the traditional right. path to get there you've got a football background talk to us about the beginning and what kind of athlete you were and how this all started what'd you play in high school uh, so here I was a first team all-state wide receiver in Las Vegas and then I got recruited to play strong safety a white wide receiver a white wide wow. receiver what man. was your 40 time uh, four five three four five three oh yeah. shit yeah. Oh shit! I mean, not too bad. Not too a little, bad. A little faster than mine. A little faster well, than BC's. It wasn't too bad, and and you know that was a learning how to run. I, I had to run a little bit of track just to learn, you know, teach me how to run. Mechanics. Correct. Yeah. Mechanics, exactly. Uh, and I was a damn good route runner. You know, I knew how to get open, and when you threw me the ball, I was going to catch the thing. So, um, and then going into college, uh, I was. One of those, like where you go to Wisconsin, you go to these schools where they project you into the next level of talent or what you're going to play next. And for me, they had me at strong safety. They wanted me to play strong safety outside linebacker. I think I was 175 pounds. Monster back. If I was, you will. I was, a, I was a little skinny dude, man. Little skinny dude. But going into my freshman so you year, went from wide receiver to strong safety. 30 pounds. I gained 30 pounds going into my freshman year. Of That's college. such a. It seems like a dramatic change. I was, I was, I graduated at 17. So when I, when I graduated or my last down of football in high school, my uncle was our, our weight training coach and it got into like heavy, heavy lifting, uh, plyometric training, all this other stuff, right? And I just basically left it all to him. I gained 30 pounds going into freshman camp, 30 pounds. I was about, I was about 215 when I showed up for, for freshman ball. And that was the whole idea was, hey man, if you're gonna be playing strong safety or anywhere moved to a rover or outside linebacker position, we're gonna have to put some meat on your bones. And, um, you know, that's why I ended up going to University of Nevada, Reno, transferred out um, very quick. I, I didn't last very long there. And I went to a school out in Utah. It was called Dixie Junior College. 
And that was a, one, of, one of the best times I ever had because it was all kids were non-qualifiers or division one rejects, sure. right? And we played for two national championships. We had just guys from Tennessee and LSU and Florida, you know, the who's who, and, and we had a blast doing it, man. It was, it was a lot of fun. And once I got done playing ball, came back to Vegas and started school and was, was here, didn't really know what I wanted to do. And, and what had been your, your connection, if any, to, to any combat sport? up to that point. So I, I trained at a couple small little gyms here in town. Like JSEC was one that was like, really the first jujitsu school that I remember was John Lewis's gym wow. out here, you know? And, you didn't uh, wrestle growing up at all? No, I did, I wrestled. The John Lewis who fought Little Evil, Jens Yeah, wow. John Lewis, wow. yeah. He was like the first kind of originator out yeah. here in Vegas when it came to, you know, I'd say jujitsu, but also like really anything MMA yeah. related was, was John Lewis, he had JSEC. Um, yeah, and I, I wrestled my sophomore year and my, my head football coach, Goes walking by the wrestling room, sees me, walks, turns right back around, grabs me <laughs> and another kid that were both skill position players. He's like, you're not wrestling. Like, get out of here. So it was something that, it, was, it always intrigued me. We had every UFC video you could imagine. You're you know, practicing all the tricks that you could on your teammates and doing everything else. But there was never really anywhere we could train out here in Vegas. And, and John Lewis's gym was one of the first ones that was out here. And how long were you there? Like when, like, so how do we go from there to whatever the next stage was so of your journey? So they, they didn't, um, when you're on scholarship, you couldn't do certain combat sports. You couldn't snowboard, you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that. Uh, so you, when you come back to Vegas, you can do stuff, kind of stuff on the radar. And then um, I got into bartending and I met a guy that owned a, owned, owned a gym out here. His name is Eric Drobny. He was a purple belt under John Jock Machado, but he's a black belt in other things. But I was I was really gravitating to the jiu-jitsu side of things. And then uh, started training with him for a while. And what year is this approximately? I would say 2003, Okay. 2003, 2004. And then uh, 2006, Randy was, about December of 2006, Randy was getting ready for Tim Sylvia, heard that he was opening a gym, kind of stumbled across. This is like, this road didn't even go all the way through. So finding this gym was, was hard enough. And then showing up the day when the, the gym wasn't technically open, but the guys were in here. It was Mike Pyle and Jay Heron, and they were the welcoming party, you know, and uh, me and a couple buddies, and, and we asked, like, hey, how do we get involved? Gym's not open yet, but you guys can come train with us tomorrow. Great. Came in and trained. Got the living shit kicked out of us. I was going to ask if it was like in pro wrestling, where every pro wrestler has a story day one in the gym. They yeah. got stretched. They got yep. basically... If you, didn't, if you weren't gonna be tough enough, you were gonna be out that door. Yeah. But were, were you thinking I might get into fighting to compete or was this more? Never really You, you couldn't have had to, the vision of being an elite coach at that point. Not, not, even, not even wanting to fight. I, I felt like I really was missing the team aspect, the camaraderie. What, what football gave to me, obviously in the athletic side of things and the competition side of things was one thing, but just that the continuity that we had. I felt that right away when I walked into Extreme Couture. And here was a guy, Mike Pyle, who's fighting at 170, probably weighed at 190 at the time. I was a 230 pound, you know, freaking outside linebacker when I came in here. And this dude was ragdolling. Yeah, with a mullet. With a way. mullet, yeah. by the way, yeah. And you know, Jay Heron and everybody else, and they're kicking the crap out of you. And I'm like, I, I, gotta, I gotta be here tomorrow. I gotta do this again. Like, I, I gotta understand what's going on. And you know, the gym opened, I think, for the public. I was member number one. We opened, um, I believe it was that January, February. You still Randy, have your original locker? I, well, I got that locker. Yeah, I actually, I gave my locker to um, Deshaun Strickland. There it is. I gave my locker up to him. So that was the, one of the original lockers. And uh, yeah, so I've, I've been there for over 16 years now. So, so in terms of like what you do at the gym, a lot of folks have asked me, I'm not entirely sure, like 
How much do you work on the brick and mortar institution and how much do you do like actual coaching? So when I first took over as gym manager, I've been gym manager now for 10 years. And a lot of my work went into the memberships, the sales, the kind of uh, resurrection of, of what really pays the bills. And in the meantime, it was myself, Coach Fallis and Dennis Davis running a lot of the pro stuff. And Fallis was the one that really laid the architect for us, the architecture for us on, on the standard. And it was always interesting to me when, you know, just learning under Robert, just the way that he approached people and the way that he brought questions up and the way that he asked the team of, how do we want to be remembered as a team? I remember that him asking that question. And, you know, everybody in the room always said, yes, we want to be world champions. That was the, the obvious answer. And he said, great, I'm glad you guys said that. Here's what the, I believe the standard should be. Here's what I think we should do to be better in these areas. As simple as showing up on time, as simple as like having tape and doing all the right things as like you would be prepared professionals. All those little things that I felt like he taught us in the beginning of that, it never was Fallis's standard, it was our standard. So when he passed away, that was the very first thing I said to the guys when we got back in the room. Hey, Robert's gone, we passed, we had our, everybody spilling out these emotions. And I said, hey, to keep his memory alive, we keep this standard alive. We're doing a lot of great things in this room. We haven't gotten to the standard that, that he once said for us, but how do we remember his memory? We continue that path. We continue what he asked of us. And, you know, it was really Robert for me and, and Dennis and, and that small group that kind of laid the blueprint for us and we've just been carrying that torch. If you remember number one, when does Fallis get here? Um, so Fallis got here let me think, I was gym manager 10 years. I think Fallis got here about nine years ago. And what was the initial or days of working with him like? Like, how, how did you guys? So I knew Robert um, probably three years prior to that. I knew Robert from Team Quest. I knew him through Dennis Davis and through Randy. And, um, you know, Robert was still kind of bouncing around. When he left Team Quest, he was kind of a nomad, but just a, just a hired gun, if you will. Like, people would bring him in for camps. and. Um, talked to him I said look man I think I'm going to be taking over the gym I would love to get you involved and what would what would that look like so we sat down and kind of broke out some numbers and credit to Dennis Dennis gave up you know, myself and Dennis actually but Dennis gave up a lot of his classes to make room for Robert to get him in the room because you know we all had these high expectations of what Robert would do for the for the gym and kind of raise that standard and, and that's exactly what he did and, um, you know, not only did he bring just a level of professionalism, but he brought us all along with him. You know, I, I, I think I, I was I talked to Robert's brother a lot about these situations. And sometimes when you talk to Rick, it's almost like talking to Robert. But Robert saw things in myself and Dennis well before I ever did, yeah. well before I ever did. And, you know, when you win these awards, you hear these accolades, I automatically spin to Robert and think like, Hey man, if it wasn't for you and, and talking to me during those times, you know, I, I know I wouldn't be here today. And give us a sense, uh, like, it sounds like he was in many ways what you've already described, the architect of this place. Um, is there any way to describe sort of like day to day what role he played? Because I, I saw him corner at times yeah. and teaching at times. Like, what was he the glue at his peak? Was he the glue that held everything together? Everyone plays that role at, at one point, I suppose. Yeah. I would say so. I think I think he had a father figure role for for many of us, and so he ran the entire jujitsu program, and then uh, Dennis and himself and then my and then me, we all ran the pro team together. 
uh, amongst Ray, and Ray Seffo as well. Mm. So, you know, you had your handful of coaches, but um, I would say the head coaches were, were Dennis and Robert. And we, we followed kind of that lead of, of those, those guys. And um, the, the jiu-jitsu program just soared, went through the roof. The, the program itself, Robert ran a great, great curriculum. And, you know, the, the, the classes were 30, 30 deep adults and that's kind of was his day-to-days he come in and run his uh team stuff and then come in and run the jiu-jitsu program now, I'm, I'm going to ask this question sensitively but also as someone who have some idea of what it means to lose a loved one via suicide yeah i'm going to ask this and i don't mean this in an, uh, a prying way but I, if someone asked me this question the answer would be yes um for you did you guys see any warning signs yeah uh, did you know they were warning signs absolutely okay um because the robert that i you know, was gravitated to early on was uh, the one that was very calculated with his words, with, with the, the way that he presented himself. None of those things really involved alcohol. None of those things at all. It was, it was, it was, you just, he was, it was a, it was a situation with him that we just, you always followed his lead. You always wanted to make sure that you made him proud in, in the dynamics, the way that he set the gym and his standard. And then it was his brother, Randy, that passed away from suicide. When his brother, Randy, passed away, we started to see a big change in Robert. And a lot of those things, I think, because of the demons of the Jehovah Witness, the families, the, the issues that they had, those started to kind of peak, peak themselves up. And that's when the alcohol started to creep in and all the other stuff started to creep in. So with that being said, it started to change, I think, a little bit of Fallis's ideologies and the way that he presented himself to us again and that's when we started like myself and Dennis would would really try to pull him pull him back into like hey man I think you need some help I think we need to sit down I think we need to get away from the booze you know Danny Davis Danny was his roommate all those times hey man I think we need to get you some help and it just became a slippery slope I think when it came to the alcohol you know um, there was practices he would show up and you could tell he hadn't been sleeping He'd be working graveyard, doing some private security stuff, and then, but you can smell it on him, you know? And, and, and th those, those times, I think for me, looking back, reminded me a lot of issues that I had with my own, my own dad and his alcoholisms. And seeing him that way, I would, I would immediately turn defensive, you know? So it was, it was a lot on, for all of us, all of us, you know, during that time. And, you know, we tried to get him as much help as we could, but you can only do so much when it's a grown man. If they don't, you know? if they don't want it. You didn't want it. You, you know, you can't. There's yeah. only so yeah. much you can do. Yep. Did you feel ready to, to take an even bigger leadership role after that? What had it? Did it feel like the time for you to? I did in, in, in a lot of ways because I felt like it was just necessary at that moment. I I, I knew that like. Because well, it sounds like what you're saying is I'm sorry to cut you off. It sounds like what you're saying is performance had been declining with his mental decline as well. A little bit. Yeah. I think guys started to wonder, like, where, where's, where's Robert? Where's, where's Coach Follis at? Like, he's supposed to be at this practice. He's not at this practice. He's supposed to be doing this or he needs time off. And, you know, all the while, we just knew that, like, we understood. Like, we, we knew that what he was going through. So if he needed time off, we're going to give him time off. If he needed to get away, okay, we're going to let him get away. But he was also, in a lot of ways, he wasn't present for the fighters that were here that were needed him here. Sure. So we started to fill in those, those spaces, I guess, as, as time would go on, you know? And um, yeah, it was, it, was, um, it was a situation when it, when it all happened, it was like, we don't have a choice. Our, our choice is now time to step up, yeah. you know? How, how um, 
How devastating was the impact? You know, I always think about Kevin Lee, and I yeah. know, you know, Kevin would probably look back on his own career and say things like he, he could have made some different choices here or there, but it also seems to me that he had a real unique bond with Robert Fallis yeah. that I don't know if he ever found again. I would say that's very accurate, you know, and, and the hard part was, I think for, I'll, I'll say this from my perspective with Kevin, is Kevin and I were always very close. But we were very close because we were students under Robert. And then when Robert passed, I became that role, but I can never fill Follis's role for him. And that was never what I wanted to do. I wanted to be there for him as like more of as a teammate and more as a friend. And when you would go into corners or you would say something to Kevin, he wouldn't look at you the same way you look at Robert. He would look at you as like my teammate or as my friend. And it was never a disrespect thing. It's just like I hadn't earned that respect from him the same way Robert has. Over the years, I did, you know, but it took a while for him. And I think I remember telling him that. I was like, hey, bro, no one's ever going to replace Robert. No one. But we're, you have to allow people in to help you try to accomplish the same goals that Robert wanted for you. And Robert believed wholeheartedly that Kevin Lee would have been world champion. Mm. And that was a lot That's of times. So, so, so did we. Yeah. So did we, you yeah, know. For real. I remember when he beat Mustafayev, I was like, you know, and then the Gregor Gillespie wins. These yeah. are two wins. You're like, damn, dude, these are good-ass yeah. wins. You know? Yeah, the Edson Barboza win jumps out to me. Yeah. Like, man, just the way he just went out and just dominated, you know, and that was after Fallis had passed, you know, so. Well, I'm interested in, and is there a moment in this transition for you where you went from first gym member there to taking a little bit seriously the mindset of maybe I could be a coach? What, what triggered that change where... What decided that you're in this chair right now, ultimately? I, it, was, it, was, it was Robert. I mean, it really was. I, we, were in, we were in Kansas City, and um, Robert was cornering Tim Elliott, and I was cornering Roy Nelson. And I remember uh, having an old-fashioned with Robert, and he just said it. He's like, he, he looked at me and said, man, you have a gift of leadership that not many people have. And he goes, I, I don't feel like I have that same gift like you do. And I'll never forget the way he described it to me. He said, when your skill level catches up to your leadership level, you're going to be one of the greatest coaches to ever do it. That was over an old fashioned. We sat there and, you know. Goosebumps now here. Yeah, that. man, I mean, it, it was, it was, and I, I, I felt it. I felt it when he said it, you know, and it was like a big brother moment. Um, and I'll, now, I'll never forget that. I, I, I talked to Rick, his brother, all the time. And I, I'll never forget that. The moment I won coach of the year for MMA Junkie, I didn't call anybody first. I called Rick. I, call, I didn't call my wife, I didn't call my mom, I called Rick and I said, hey man, you know, I know Robert would uh, be happy about this. Mm, that's great. Uh, what, uh, interested, Randy Couture, the name on the gym, one of my, look, a true American hero, one of my favorites of all time for sure. He played some role in, in your, you getting to this point. Specifically, what, do you, what, what kind of wisdom do you take from the, from the, from the natural? Man, we were talking about that today and, and I got to see him yesterday. It's, it's so surreal when Randy Couture pops in your office and just chops it up with you, right? And, and I, I, I got a little emotional when I saw him yesterday because, you know, it's, it, was, it was because of him in the very beginning of him believing in me on such an early age of, hey man, I want you to take over this gym. I want you to run this. I want you to run the day-to-days. Well before I ever saw it, it was like him and Fallis saw this thing in me that I didn't really see at the time myself. And to be able to pick up the phone and call a guy like Randy, if you have a, a question about cage awareness, question about you know ground and pound or any of this stuff, marital advice. I wouldn't take marital advice from him <laughs> all the time, 
but definitely, definitely when it comes to the MMA stuff. And um, yeah, BC man, it's, it's a it's a pretty cool journey. And I I know when I was talking to my office, I was I was getting emotional. I was getting teared up because I just hey man, without you, I know I'm not here. And, and being able to have you as a resource has just been such an ungodly commodity that I could never I could never just replace. I, I want to go back to something he said, which is sort of talking about your journey through all these different narratives. Um, do you have any competitive pro or amateur fights? Zero. Okay, so tell tell me why you didn't fight. Like, what is your reason for why you never wanted to or ultimately did not choose to? Sure, so um, Dennis Davis was getting ready for a fight at the Riviera Hotel here, and I was training with him a bunch. Uh, the matchmaker came in to check in on him, and the matchmaker sees me training with Dennis and says, hey man, would you be interested in taking a fight? At the time, there was no amateur fights. There was nothing amateur, you just turned pro. And I said, sure, I, I would definitely be interested. Uh, who is it? And he said, Ryan Bader. So I know Ryan Bader, he played at McQueen up, up in Reno. I played at you know, Green Valley here. I was a year, I think a year older than him. And uh, go home, my wife is about this pregnant with my first daughter. I said, hey babe, um, I got offered a fight. I was thinking about taking it, it's like $2,000. She's like, you out of your fucking mind? Why would you do that? Why would you do that? I was like, well, I don't know. Like, I, I train every day. I spar. I'm with the guys. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Like, why not? Like, like why not see? She goes, do you see yourself wanting to, to navigate yourself all the way to the UFC and make okay money? And, and is this what you really want? And I was right in the middle of the hiring process for City of Las Vegas and City of North Las Vegas Fire Department. And she goes, so you, now you're just going to go and take a fight where this dude's probably going to spike you on your head and paralyze you? She goes, no. I'm pregnant. We're having a baby. You're in the middle of going to the, the fire academy. You're not taking this fight. Is that where you always saw yourself? Like when you finished college, because you know, there are some types who like, I'm going to try and make a practice squad or, you know, yeah. I know because, you know. Cup of coffee. Cup of coffee. Right? <laughs> yeah, you, you can't stop doing skits <laughs> and bits. I don't think that was, but skits that's and all, bits. Right, all right. Skits and bits. I mean. But in all seriousness, um, I went to a one double A school. So I saw a bunch of guys who tried to make practice yeah. squads. Sounds like that was never on your mind. So what did you imagine you were going to do back in Vegas before that? Like, why did you envision your life going? And how, and how long until stripping was in that vision? That was always, you know, I just, I just moonlighted in the stripping aspect. It was make a couple bucks here and there. You know? <laughs> you know, yeah, um, yeah it, it, was, it was something for me when I, I started bartending. Um, the bartending side of things, I, I, I really saw as a slippery slope in the Vegas nightlife at 24-7, you had access to anything and everything that you wanted, and I just hated where I felt like my life was going to end up. And I, 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 don't, I, I don't like saying this because I have a lot of people I respect in the industry, but I would start to see where they were and where their outs were, and they didn't have very many. They were stuck in this nightlife industry. They especially were, in Las Vegas. Especially in Las Vegas. You don't Vegas. see that, you'll see, you'll see like, people in their 50s still serve in bar in, in a lot of places. You don't see that as like in New York nearly as much. Exactly, and granted, you can make a lot of good money sure. here, and you can make it a career. And it got to that point where, you know, I, I, I utilized the service industry to make a good living for me, but I wanted to pivot to something else, and that was gonna be the fire department. I got hired by City of North Las Vegas and City of Las Vegas on the same hiring test. I, out of 6,000 people, I was number two on the list. Wow. I get hired, I scored a 98. Get hired on by both departments. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? 
That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I get to pick between whichever department I want. City of North Las Vegas is taking only 95s and above. City of Las Vegas is taking 90s and above. So wherever I want to go, I can take it. I do my background investigation and the fight that I got into when I was in Reno in the dorms pops up on my thing. I talked to my lawyer at the time, I said, hey, he goes, you don't even have to put it. It's not, it's, it's long gone, it's sealed expungent, it ends up becoming a disturbing the peace. It's not even on your record. I talked to my hiring chief and my hiring chief says, you need to put it down there because it's an FBI background check. If they find anything that you lie about, you're automatically off. So I put it in, I put everything down and you know, I go to my background investigation and they said, we can't hire you can't hire you for that, that fight you got in. So right then and there, I didn't know, I was, I was at a loss. I really was. I did not know what the hell I was gonna do. And so your career path gets stuffed because of a fight, yet you pivot into fighting. to the fighting where into you fighting. are on top of the game. And, and, and thankfully that was it. Randy said, he goes, I got a job for you, I, man. Isn't that ironic? I mean, you know, don't you think? A little too ironic. Right? Uh, I mean, that, that is an incredible transformation. So. When I look at the cool factors of, of the job you have, it, I'm sure it's so much more behind the scenes of molding minds well, and seeing how progress. Ask, how are we not asking about the fight in the dorms? Oh, yeah. yeah. Right, you know what? Pause and let's get right back in there, please. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Tell us about the fight in the dorms. Yeah, it was, it was, it was pretty stupid. I, uh, so I was what year of college? Uh, my freshman year. Okay. Freshman right. year. Already been warned numerous times. Yes. I was basically on double secret probation. Like, yes. if, you, if yes. you do anything else, you're, you're getting, getting kicked out. Uh, I'm... I'm I'm heading back to the dorms. I was, I was semi-dating this girl at, at the time and um, ended up getting into a fight with a, a gentleman that she was kind of talking to as well and ended up hitting him with a microwave. <laughs> this is my dream to hit BC. I've been yeah, waiting to hit yeah, him with a microwave. It, it got ugly. It got ugly. And then uh, on the way out, it didn't help that I hurled a Lysol can at him uh, on the oh, way out. Oh. Yep. So that got ugly. And then... I ended up going down to the first floor and kind of hiding out and he wrangled up all of his friends and about 12 angry mob guys came and I had a, a aluminum baseball bat. <laughs> I said, all right, here's how it's gonna go down, guys. I'm gonna crack at least two of you with this bat and then you guys will probably jump me and have your way with me, but two of you guys are gonna hit with this baseball bat. And none of them stepped up, so by who's that time. Coming with me? Who's yeah. coming with me? I'm yeah. starting to something? If you had done that at Temple, you would have had Temple University. People would have taken you up on your challenge. Yeah, I bet. Oh, they I bet. knuckle up early in oh, yeah. Philly, let me tell you. Oh, yes. I could imagine. In Utah, I'm not so sure. Yeah, but I, I mean, imagine. in hindsight, so is that one of those called? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I went to jail. You, yeah. got, you got cuffed and everything. Yeah, I got cuffed. BC, have you ever been cuffed? I have not been cuffed. I've you also can't never get me been cuffed. cuffed. Yep. I've, been, I've been, never been cuffed. Yep. That time you tried to solicit, they got you, right? 
Anyway, uh, what I was going to say in a state. Man, fuck your mom. <laughs> Can you give me directions to the interstate, sir? Yeah, there you go. Uh, when I look at that, this, this transition, I was going to say that molding the mind, seeing progress has got to be big. But the fight night buzz, which even as journalists, when you sit front row, I mean, it's, it's the drug that keeps us in the job. It's the drug that keeps the fighters in the job. What is that drug like through the lens of head coach at, at, the, at the highest level in this game? Guys, it's so hard to explain, man. It really is. It's, 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 the, it's the most comfortable space I've ever been in my life. You know, I think a lot of us, I suffer from anxiety. I hate the big crowd. I hate all this stuff. Like, we were at a football game last week, and I was freaking out because there's just, just too many people. It was just, it was just the whole situation. And, and that, that walk, that minute on the stool, that time in, in the corner, I'd never have felt more comfortable in my entire life. It's just, I just feel like it's where I belong. And does time slow down? It does. It really does. You don't. There's very, very few distractions. You kind of really do get that tunnel vision in that moment. Do you do a lot of yelling? I don't try to yell a lot, depending on the situation. I like to. I like to let my guy fight or girl fight. I like. I like to. I like to watch them, and then, if there's things of urgency, that's when you'll hear me yell. But I'm not a big. I'm not a big guy who wants to scream from from bell to bell i i see coaches that do do that i i think it, it doesn't allow the fighter to understand when something might be urgent in that moment but if i talk to you the way i'm talking to you now and just asking you, you hey man i need you to stick your jab or read this or do this then you're okay you're calm you're cool you're collect i'm calm and cool collect but the moment i start yelling luke i need you to do this bob then you know hey he's he's telling me something because it's urgent yeah. Right? Actually, I'd block it out. I'd be like, Dad, stop. Dad, stop, stop. Dad. <laughs> but I understand. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what the right answer is, but I guess the question I would ask as a follow-up is, what would you say is commonly your emotional state in the middle of a round? I, I think I was, I was tell, talking to you about it. In the Sean Strickland fight, I was trying to get nervous. I legit was like, I, I don't have, like, I should be nervous right now. And I, I, I wasn't, it, it really was a, a moment of just like, I felt like time kind of slowed down in that, in that fight. It was, it was really crazy. And, and I don't know if that's like, it's a good thing or it was a bad thing, I don't know. But I, I, I really relished in that moment. I really enjoyed that moment. It was like, oh, I'm good here. We're only a six to one underdog. Let's go, let's go out and, you know, see what we can do here. Well, you know? that's, this has got to be such an incredible moment in your career, and I know you recently chatted with Luke on Morning Combat about how Sean did that, and it just, look, from the planning to the execution, it was a, I felt it, it was a moment. Yeah. But hindsight is twenty twenty. When you look back at the build to that great fight, Strickland, the, up, the upset heard around the world, do you see anything in Izzy where you go, ooh, that, that was a warning sign, or I thought, I put that in the back of my mind, and now that the performance happened the way it did, and you guys executing to perfection, and the title changed hands, did, did anything surprise you looking back on that? I, I thought it was going to be a war. I mean, I really did. I thought it was going to be a I'm, You know, you and I talked about this. I mean, damn, Izzy's good. I mean, he's, he's unbelievable. Um, and I, I think people give us a lot of credit on the game plan side of things. It's Sean's pressure. The way Sean fights you, the pressure that he puts on people, that's inherent in his game. It was our job to try to kind of just keep him in those little corner posts there and then reset the cage better and not chase after this little thing, right? Because with Sean, if you give that man too much bandwidth, the, the, the Wi-Fi just goes, 
right? So you just gotta, you gotta coach them in increments. Small little things here, here, or there. And then when we would get them where we would have a pad session or a workout in the cage, and you would tell them like, hey, this, this is important that you understand if you do this, this is the consequence of that. And he understood all those little things. So with Izzy, I, I feel like he just was stuck in the mud because of the style of Sean Strickland. But because you're almost keeping him behind that warning track line the entire stretch of the fight. That's, that's where you got it. And, and we talked about this before when uh, Perea beat him in the first fight. We did a breakdown with uh, Spencer E. Um, kite. kite with um, the UFC. And that was, a, that was the breakdown was how does Perea beat Izzy? And you have to wrangle him into the corner post of the cage. And there's some things that I thought he did really well there. Now, fight two, Izzy baited him over there. Probably because he saw a hole or an opening that he can, he can capitalize on with the overhand. Right, so there was a definite chess match there. And I think that he said, okay, I'm okay doing this now with Sean because of that chess match and I can catch him with that overhand. And he just couldn't find him with it. How long does it take to get where you're at? Where, I mean, how many guys would you say you corner in a year? Oh, good question. I, I'm probably 30 or 40. Okay, so here's what I'm trying to understand. Sean's your guy, yeah. Danny Ige's your guy. I could, name, I could go on a list of a bunch. How do you decide who is and who isn't? Because, and I don't mean like, they don't make the cut. You're one person, there's 24 hours in a day, like there's yeah. a logistical limit. What is that process? Man, it's, it's, it's tough. And there's, there's people that I feel like, if you don't connect on a certain level, ideology, on, on meeting at like certain times and getting, you know, it could even come down to scheduling, right? Um, then you start spreading yourself too thin. And not only you spread yourself too thin, the product doesn't, isn't as good, right? You don't get enough time. And, and, and for me, it's my tape study. It's my, it's my breakdowns. It's my game planning. It's things like that. If I'm not doing that at the highest capacity that I can for each and every guy, then I need to start trimming some of the fat. Who do you trim the fat from? You know, there's, there's guys that's like, hey, this guy shows up only for training camp. You can't grow with that guy outside of camp. Well, somebody like that, sorry, man, if you're not here during the off season, we don't have any growth. You're just coming in for to train, and there's no errors that we can correct. I can't work with you any longer. Or here's some ideas of guys you can work with in our gym. You can still stay in our pro practice or do those things. That's the beauty about having the big gym that we have and the accomplished amount of coaches that we have. It's not just me. Guys can work with Dennis and Ray and everybody else in the room and get quality coaching, and it helps everybody across the board. So who would, like, I'm not asking for a power ranking, but besides Sean and Dan, who have you been working with the longest? Brad Tavares. Brad Tavares, yes. Brad Tavares. Those would be the top three? Brad Tavares, Dan, probably the most amount of fights. Um, Jeremy Kennedy. Jeremy Kennedy, a ton. yes. Um, getting up there with Kai Kamaka, Puna, Ty Gorder. Uh, but definitely Brad, Brad's, Brad's number one. How'd you guys link up? Here, training partners. I was, I was Tim Boach. I was Tim Boach. Oh, <laughs> shit, the Barbarian. Yeah, I was the Barbarian. When Tim Boach used to walk out with the Conan the Barbarian song, the hardest, coldest walkout in all of MMA. Sorry so about that. So great, so great. So it's funny because, you know, Brad just brought me my check from the last fight, and it was, it was addressed to Tim Boach. That was, <laughs> that was the joke. So, yeah, I've been, I've been Brad's Tim Boach for a long time. And uh, that was the first, first fight I cornered Brad for was, was Tim Boach. I was there with him and then been with him ever since. I only missed one fight was his last fight against uh, um, Bruno Silva. I was in Hawaii. I had um, Kai and, and Rafion Stotts there. So that was, 
that, that one hurt not being here for, for Brad. You know, I'm not, it, was, it was very weird for me to see him fight and me not be there. All right, the highest of highs are when you're lucky enough to be with somebody who wins a world title, and that's sure. it's happened a few times with you. You're, grow, you're, you're building a resume here that people are taking notice of, but the lowest of lows when you care that much yeah. and you can't fight for them and they're trying their best, and it goes disastrous. Yeah. How hard is that when, when you sometimes are playing father figure to some of these guys? It's, it's the most difficult thing I think you can deal with at this level of coaching because especially when it comes from guys, and I'll use Ige as an example, a guy who checks all the boxes, a guy who leaves zero crumbs behind. Mm -hmm. He's not cutting corners. He's not. He's doing everything right when it comes to his mental state, his health, his weight cut, his training, every little thing he does and sometimes you come up short. Those when it hurts. Those are, those are the ones that sucks because, you know, it might be a skill-based thing. Like, um, we fought Ivalov. That kid was better than us. That kid was just flat out better than us. Yeah. But I still believe Dan has the skill set and the tools to go beat a guy like that. You know, uh, Josh Emmett, again, another great fight. Close fight. Close fight. Very close fight. Some people had, had Dan win in that fight. Again, we just didn't get over the hump on certain little things like that. Those ones always bug you, man. You, you go home and, and, you, and you, you lose a little bit of sleep on those ones. All right, well, your job can be all-encompassing where obviously it's fight planning, it's tape study, it's, it's teaching and improving upon skill sets, but it's also psychological, mental, counseling. Yeah. You can feel like family to them, all of that. When you hear, for example, Sean Strickland in the post-fight press conference say, I don't know if I'd be here without Eric Nixick because he kind of just keeps me from going over the line and fighting too crazy or acting too crazy outside of the cage. <laughs> How do you explain what that feels like when you're having, when you know you're having an impact on these athletes' true lives in the yeah. direction of their arc as people, in addition to, hey man, you should have wrestled more in round three and we could have got the win. <laughs> it's, it's amazing in the regards of, you feel like the time and effort that you're putting in with somebody is actually working. And, we're all family men here, and the time that you take away from your family, they're, they're robbed of that time, they're never gonna get that time back. But when it's put into somebody else and it reciprocates back, or they're winning, or they're doing the right things, and they're taking care of you too, right? Like, your time is worth money, your time and your effort, and everything you're doing, you're bringing it back home, and you're getting these awards, and you're getting those accolades, and you're seeing the fact that, like, that they care, that your fighters care just as much as you do, that's when you see just it all kind of come together. And, and when, when for Sean, we talked about this quite a bit. He's a guy that, I think you and I were on a phone call about this one time. You understand a little bit more about his past. It helps you understand how and how to approach him a little bit differently. I don't agree with everything that he says. I don't agree with damn near anything the guy says. <laughs> but I know that we can make him better. And I know that at the end of his career, that I am going to leave a better, I'm gonna leave him a better human being, right? And hopefully a better, a, a better husband and a better father down the line. And that, I think for me has become something that I'm very passionate about is leaving these men and women off better than you found them. Yes, you wanna make better fighters, but better human beings. I, I wanna ask a question about this and I don't have a good answer. Something I think about all the time, it's like, First of all, you can't run a high-level MMA gym and then do ideological purity tests. It'll go out of business tomorrow, it just yeah. won't work. But more than that, here's one thing I think about, and I really don't know what the answer is, because I'm not comparing the two as identical. I hope you understand, I'm gonna make a comparison with Sean, but I'm not saying that these are the same things. But I think about someone like Sean who had a really fucked up background, 
I think about somebody like Gervonta Davis, who I'm not you know if you're familiar with his details, grew up in yeah. extraordinary poverty, complete abandonment issues. I mean, literally, literally abandoned for long stretches of time. It's like, how are these guys supposed to achieve enlightenment having these life journeys? Um, I don't know what the answer to that is, but at the same time, you know, they do polarizing shit and it's hard to stomach. I don't know what yeah. to say about that, but I wonder what you make of it. Yeah, and it, I, I think of it a lot of times too, like growing up and having my dad as, as, as a mentor, but a football coach, when you had a team of kids and, and people around, the sport brought everybody together, right? And it didn't matter race, creed, color, none of that mattered anymore. All that mattered was like the uniform or, or you know, working together to achieve a common goal. And I think that sometimes with people like Sean or even like, you know, guys with the, that, that type of upbringing, it becomes about like self-accusation, giving them something that they feel a part of. And that was my main thing with Sean was like, hey, let's give this guy a home. Let's give him something where he doesn't feel like he has to bounce around to five different gyms and teams because I'm just gonna break whatever here and I'm gonna go to the next place and do that there. No, no, you're, you're good here, man. Like, we're gonna give you a platform. We're gonna give you training partners. We're gonna give you some coaching. We're gonna give you a little bit of love. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna go out and grab, grab dinner, right? We're gonna try to make you feel a part of this team and make you feel like part of the leadership. Hey, Sean, can you, can you uh, run a wrestling practice for us? You want, you want me to run one? Yeah, man, run a wrestling practice. Okay, okay, great. Now he feels a part of something, right? So that's been something for us over the years. I, I feel like we're, you start to see him come out of his shell a little bit more and scream extreme couture and how much he loves it here because ultimately this is his gym too. Um, in terms of other high notes, we were discussing this. Were you in the corner or the training camp for Misha when she fought Holly? I was in the room. I was not in her. I was not in the corner for yeah. that one. That. Oh, so Wikipedia has false information, Brian. Yeah, they got a lot of weird information. On Wikipedia. Oh, it's really? a false. Yeah, they say that you were in the corner. No, I was not in the corner. No. That corner would have been Fallis, Gif, Caraway, and I think uh, this this guy Travis. But we were all here for her for camp, and we worked. Everybody worked with her for that stuff. But that was the main. That was Fallis and Gif were the mains. What would you say are the biggest nights in Extreme Couture history? Um. Randy beating, beating Tim. Tim. That was so fucking big. Randy beating Tim. Randy beating Gabe Gonzaga. Really? Holy he was counted out ahead of that shit. one. I remember he, when he picked him up and dropped him on his fucking head. Fucking high crotched him, right? Yeah. Now, here's the thing about that was Randy was going through so much shit personal during that time. Which is weird because he had this complete career renaissance. I, that. I mean, was, right? And the, here's this guy who... Head kick KO's the head kick KO killer or guy the miracle crow cop, this jujitsu guy who ultimately now is thrusted into this title fight with Randy, and Randy's going through all this shit at this time, and he's got to defend his belt against this animal, and then he goes out and just gets his arm shattered in the first round blocking a kick, and then just dismantles this man and freaking <laughs> right. So here's the best part about the story is. Randy beats Tim Sylvia, I mean, uh, beats Gabe Gonzaga. Gabe comes and trains with us after. So we're all going with Gabe Gonzaga now, and I'm like, holy shit. Like, this guy is a monster. 
and it just made you go, well, how good is the old man? Because <laughs> this guy is kicking the shit out of all of us, and Gabe Gonzaga was the truth, man. So, yeah, that was a big one for us. I remember um, Forrest, when Forrest won wow, uh, the he, title. We, uh, he beat Rampage. Rampage for that one. Wow, yes, that was a big one. Forrest, I lost 20 one? bucks to Mario Yamasaki that night. We were, watching, really? yeah, we were watching at a sushi bar yeah. in D.C. This is the weirdest took, story took, in NBA history, by the way. He took my just, money. Yeah, yeah. Wow. yeah Forrest. Did he do this at the end of it? Uh, him and his brother are big D.C. guys. That's <laughs> That forced out of here, that was, a, that was another big okay. one, like, especially the, in the early ages. The mission won against Holly because that was the fifth huge, round. That was the huge. end of the fifth That's round. That's among the most huge. emotional, dramatic wins in the history of this huge. sport. So crazy, man. Like, that, one, that one was different in a lot of ways because Fallis did such a good job of making it like a gym win, right? It was like the members won. Everybody felt a, a part of that whole camp. They really did. And then Misha bringing the belt back to the gym. And it was like that restart when, you know, Shrink Couture had its high. And then it was like, oh, mm -hmm. shit, now what? And that was the big meeting that we had where False was like, I never forget this. He goes, you guys just want to be okay at this? Or do you guys want to win some fucking world titles? And everybody went, we want to win some fucking world titles, right? And then here comes Misha bringing that belt home. Mm. And that was like, okay, we can do this again, right? So that went, all of them feel so different at that time. But, but that one there was like, we're back. We're back. We can do this again. Interesting. All right. Where, where, where does Ngannou versus Gan rank in the sweetness? Because you, we've talked to you about it before at length of oh, the incredible journey Ngannou went through to get to that fight, to take on that fight. We were the only two people in America who knew yeah. that Ngannou was going to yeah. wrestle that night. Guys, I just want to say that. But, I mean, that's got to like, feel so great when you look back at that. Oh, where, where that one was awesome. And, and it was... It was it was great in so many ways. It was obviously Francis getting through the knee injury that we all told him, hey, bro, this is an awful idea to fight on this knee. And he's like, no, I'm good. I'm just going to go out and take this guy down. I'm like, what? Um, you know, and obviously the backstory with the, with the former Jim and Ferdinand and everything else. And I remember, like, Ferdinand, like, throwing strays at us and me and everybody like, what the hell did we do? Like, it's not even about us, you know? And it was, it was, it was very different in the regards. It just felt like it was, like, us, like our little group versus everybody, right? Mm. Like we're, we're against the UFC and their contract dispute and then the Ferdinand and it was this and it was the knee injury. So that whole lead up was just so much until we got to Anaheim. The moment we landed in Anaheim and we knew we were fighting, I was like, okay, we're good to go. Like, let's do this, man. It was crazy. Yeah, that was big. But in the, in the moment he gets his hand raised, the, the decision is right. You had oh, to believe that. I don't believe what I just saw. That, oh, I, that was part of it. it. Lost it. Knowing we were down, you know, the first two rounds and we needed something, you know, and, and you know, that was, that was Francis, man. It was just his foresight, catching that kick, hitting the high crotch, taking him down. The moment we got him down on the ground and getting to our routes, right? And, and we're big on, on understanding Heavyweight get-ups get up differently, right? They're not technical underhooks and build up to a single leg. They just go belly down and just burp and stand up, <laughs> right? I mean, that's kind of what they do. So when we worked on a lot of the routes, the killing of the bottom leg and getting to those, those split and pin positions and doing all those things, I'm like, oh, shit, we're on to something here. And then the round was over, and I'm watching Gon get up, and the way that he was getting up and then his body language, I'm a big body language guy. And I'm reading his body language and I'm watching, I'm watching Francis get up and I look at Francis and I'm like, hey, look at that motherfucker. And he's just, I'm like, dude, we got him. We got him. So we got on the stool and I was like, hey, 
Let's get right back to that wrestling, man. If we can get this guy down again, we're gonna even this up. You know, let's find another way to fit in. And he did, and that was a beautiful, I think he went like double to high crotch or back to a single and ran a knee tap or something, had a dump on it, and then held him down that whole round. And then it was that 2-2 going into five. Legendary nights. We always argue about the evolution of the sport and what is gonna be the next breakthrough or sure. the next trend. I mean, do you feel like you are one of these scientists in the lab literally trying to find that on a regular basis? You know, what part of the MMA game is not being overly utilized that could change it, like calf kicks, like, right. like something like that. I mean, that's gotta be a big part of what you do. I, I love that. I, and, and here's the thing for me is, man, you gotta enjoy watching Corey Sandhagen's of the world, right? You've gotta enjoy breaking down Izzy and, and trying to find what he does with his feint game. And Volkanowski, like he's at the top of the level. If you're a coach or a fighter and you're not taking the time to watch the guys at the highest level, at the pinnacle of the, of the, of the sport, or coaches, or, or you're not investing in the uh, dynamic strikings or the BJJ fanatics and just learning one or two little things from here on out, you're gonna get left behind because this game goes fast and it goes quick. And you like to be on the cutting edge of that of those things, but for me, it really has been the guys that have the ability to strike out of both stances. There's no more of that, hey man, I'm only an orthodox or I'm only a southpaw. You might be primarily there, hit or miss, but when you see the fluidity of guys that are able to do it well from both stances, the Mickey Mantles of the world that yeah. can get on both sides of the plate and hit the ball, that's the big thing. Have you seen Boots Ennis at all in boxing? I do, yep. Yeah, he's a yep. fucking motherfucker with that. But let me challenge that if I may. If I may. I love it. In the house of Nixick. One thing that I get asked about, and I, you know, this is just something that's kind of curious, is like last week, or maybe two weeks ago at this point, we saw the performance of Jack De La Maddalena, Sure. Kyle Nelson on that card as well. And then you can also throw in Sean's performance against Izzy. Yep. And if there's a common denominator, it's not that they employ the same tactics, rather that their central approach is they're going to build a house of defense mm -hmm. first primarily, fundamentally, and then put weapons on the outside of it. Whereas I feel like a lot of MMA guys are like, here's all my weapons, and defense is very much an afterthought. It kept JDM safe against uh, Kyle, well, not Kyle, what's his name? Um, Kevin. Kevin, Kevin Holland. Um, Kyle Nelson had a great performance as well. Sean, I mean, what else can I say about it? Right. But it was defense first. Yep. Is that the future, maybe? I think that's a great thing to look at, and especially because, now let's, let's, let's pick apart the both sides of the stances things. You can't switch stances if your defense is shitty off of one side, right? Right. If you're a stance switch person, your defense comes first. Now, of course, we love to see like this, the drop step and the high kicks and all these things, but if you can't defend yourself from there, there's no point of ever going over there. So I think it's a great point on your part, Luke, is, is there's these guys that are winning with very, very sharp fundamentals and rock solid defense. Right. Rock solid defense. Now, when you look at like the Stricklands of the world, they're, they're relentless when it comes to their takedown defense. Their styles in the room are very different than most. He doesn't shrink to train. He doesn't do anything but spar and grapple, right? So I, I can only say this anecdotally just from, from what I see from Sean, but I would imagine like these guys like JDM and, and Kyle are probably very similar to what Sean's method, methods of madness are when it comes to the training. So that could be definitely something where I see. The one thing that I do like now, especially in the counter game, guys are getting better at building in their, their counters within their defense. You're not seeing a big hiccup when you see like a catch and then a return. It's like fluid in everything that they throw now. 
and their feet are coming with them and then their defense stays sound and all those things. I see that in those three guys you're, you're speaking of. So yeah, it definitely could be. I mean, so somebody's going to discover the next breakthrough. Maybe it's the heart punch. Yeah, maybe, maybe it's, it's about punch. time. The dim mock. The, the dim mock. Yeah, that's what they call we, it. We get we get those cast of characters in here every once in a while, and it's a field day. Please record that. Yeah, we got in some trouble for the recordings of those. Oh, really? Yeah, we, we got. We Didn't Natan Levy just beat the shit out of some anti-Semite? Then yeah. we got some talking to. Yeah. That <laughs> the lawyers were like, "Well, okay, uh, nice thing you did for the community." Was that um, uh, Lieutenant Aldo Rain? Or I've been chewed out before. <laughs> So we we done we done some green lighting here not a couple yeah. times. We had a Denmark guy come in one time and asked us if he was allowed to do his pressure points. And mm. I remember Dennis Davis looking at him and goes, "You can do whatever the fuck you want, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> just gift wrapping them." And yeah, just don't die. <laughs> just don't die. You can do whatever you want, buddy. Sounds like the bully bit beatdown refreshed. Oh dude. man, it's it's daily in here. It's have daily you? On a serious note, have you ever had to kick a fighter out of the gym? Yeah, I've kicked quite a few out. Yeah. That's not a fun conversation, yeah. is it? No, we've we've kicked. Uh, I won't say his name, but he was he was in the UFC. Um, we, we kicked him out. He was uh, um, just a horrible, horrible teammate. Um, yeah, Michelle Michelle Perea gave him a little five finger to the face. The the backflip guy? Yeah. Okay, I'm not sure who this is. Michelle but. gave him the. Yeah, in the fight, it was it was pretty good. It was pretty good. So we had to kick him out. He was he was kind of a uh, he was tough to have in the room. But very rarely have, have we had. I, here's the thing that I loved about what Fallis always spoke about: the standard will excuse people on their own. They, they either they either fit the standard or they f miraculously find their way out. You know, we don't really need to kick them out. Then there's been a handful. You're like, bro, you got to go, got to go. So, what is uh, what's? I'm not going to say exactly what's left, but I guess I am wondering for a guy who's brought home some championships and the gyms. Reputation is about as good as I've ever seen it, and and it doesn't smell in here. To be as fair, as bad, you know? as, as bad. bad. Every gym smells. Yeah. You must go home at times, and your wife is like, "Just get in the fucking Just shower. Get, go in the yeah. now. Yeah. You spray me on the way in." But in all seriousness, it's not exactly clear how you keep doing what you're doing. So, how do you envision the next five years? I just honestly, you guys, like I have the best job in the world. I really do, and and. When you when you realize those expectations with a guy like Sean Strickland. And you see a guy like Chris Curtis finally break it into the UFC and then, you know, be able to provide for his family differently than he was before. When you see people like Danny Ige when, when he couldn't pay you as a coach and now he's paying you nice checks and driving nice cars and doing those things, you want to you wanna bring people along the same. You, wanna, you want them to have the same potential and give them the same opportunities that they are and to be able to change their family's lives. Um, that's been something for me, man, I've really enjoyed about being here at Extreme Couture, it's, it's provided me that atmosphere, it's provided me that, you know, the canvas, if you will, to help these, these individuals and, and paint these better pictures for themselves and their families, man. It's pretty cool. So for me, it's, it's really that. And then, you know, I, I put a lot of pressure on myself, I think in a lot of ways, because I failed of, uh, the failures of who I was as a kid, the things I felt like I could have done better as a child, um, an, a, a collegiate athlete. There's a lot of failures there that I just feel like I owe my mom and dad, you know, things I could have done a lot better with myself and, and being a better human being. So, you they got to be proud now, Coach. Yeah, Eric, they're very okay? proud. Okay, I mean, they're very proud. do you have an Al Bundy story you can share with us? You got to have four touchdowns in a game when you were the white lightning running back <laughs> for Polk High. You know, yeah, I, I, yeah I, had, I had a couple. I'd say the one that stands out to me the most was when uh, 
you know, our senior year, we, we beat Long Beach Poly. They're number two in the country. Wow. Um, they came out to play us. It was, uh, this is a crazy story. So it was the, the, the night, the next night, Tupac got shot. Oh, yeah. shit. It was the next night. Yeah, so. That was the night of, uh, what, Tyson. Mike Tyson against Bruce Seldon. So you don't yeah. have an alibi. That, that could have been. Yeah, we could have been in trouble there. <laughs> so, yeah, actually, crazy story. So Long Beach Poly travels out to, to, to play us, and they actually get into, like, an argument with Tupac at the In-N-Out in Baker. That's or random. Bakersfield, or uh, Barstow. Barstow. There's an In-N-Out in Barstow. So they, they see Tupac, and they're on their way. They're traveling out to, 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 to play us, and there's Bleacher Report actually did an article on it. I'll have to pull it up for you guys. I, I remember That's reading that. That's fucking crazy. Yeah, so Long Beach Poly, they come out and play us, and I'm talking wall-to-wall Division One talent. I think at the time, they might even still be the one team in, that has the most NFL players, high school team with the most NFL players. And they show up, and I remember my dad being in the press box, and I remember calling the coin toss. I remember looking back at my dad going, like, what the fuck are we getting ourselves into? So they had a kid named Kenyon Rambo. He ended up going to Ohio State. First play of the game, guy catches a screen pass and looks like he's on ice skates. He's about 72 yards for a touchdown. They're like, oh, man, this is going to be a long night. So I'm going on the field on offense, and and my linebacker, Pete Batiste, is coming off, and I remember him grabbing me and goes, you got to score now. We need it. I'm like, yeah, we're going to try, bud. <laughs> so I catch, a, I catch a slant, and I go, and I score. So now it's 7-7. We get ourselves a game, and we ended up shit. beating these guys 16-10. to 10, And that Holy was their shit. first loss, first non-conference loss um, in five years, and they were number two in the country that year. And I think they put, like, I think they put like six guys on the, in the NFL that year. So, Damn, did you ever our, play against the guy who went to the NFL, like, like, like that you remembered? Like my, a big name? The guy covering me that game was Marquis Anderson. He played for the Raiders, so he covered me that game. I had seven catches on him. Seven oh, catches shit, and a you touchdown. hung seven on him. Yeah, seven catches and a touchdown on him. Yeah. He ended up going to UCLA, and then he played for the Raiders for a few years. Marquis Anderson. That is wild. Yeah. The, and the gentleman you hit with the uh, microwave. Who Where is, is he? I, I think he's around. I think he's good. I think he's good. Uh, you know, Gray Maynard was actually friends with the guy. They went to high school together. So Gray knew him. Um, you That's know, awesome. Yeah, Gray, Gray was always the legendary story of that whole thing. But uh, hopefully, hopefully he's not going to you know, pay back with a microwave on me while I'm walking the dog one day or something. But as far as I know, my mom had to pay a couple bucks for, for, oh, yeah. for the mess up. Well, there. hey, enjoy Saudi Arabia. We wish Thank Francis you. well against Tyson Fury. It's going to be a spectacle. It's going to be something. Yeah, I'm excited right? to get out there. And if, by the way, if the oh shit moments ha- happened, you're going to have a Forrest Gump-like uh, last couple years. I mean, this guy just he just hangs around big moments. He just keeps winning. Weren't you yeah. in Aljo's corner for the Jan rematch as well? Yeah, I was with Aljo. We had, uh, we had Aljo for Jan twice and TJ Dillashaw. I didn't corner for the TJ fight. That was in Abu Dhabi, I Abu think Dhabi, it was. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so I've got, let's see. So Lance Palmer, Lance Palmer was my first. Um, we've had Aljo, Francis, Rafion Stotts, now Sean Strickland. Jesus. Well, you stay busy, and uh, from the looks of it, you stay winning. <laughs> Thank you. We, uh, we appreciate this opportunity to talk with you, and um, dude, the microwave story was great. I'm really <laughs> glad you told it. It's Eric Nixick, everybody. <laughs>